The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing and turn in your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 4, although I'm going to read the previous verses in chapter 3. But if you'll turn there, please. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, the law of saving faith, expounded and illustrated. Uh, in Romans 3:27 through 31, we have the framework for everything that happens in chapter 4. So I'd ask, please, that you follow along with me in Romans chapter 4 and verse 27. Then what becomes of, notice what he says, our boasting. Not the boasting of the Lord, but the boasting of ourselves. What becomes of our boasting? Answer, it's excluded. Well, by what kind of law? That is, what imperative principle from God dismisses our boasting and excludes it? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also since God is one, who will justify the circumcised, that would be the Jew, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and his mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. I do love God's Word. There was a time in my life I didn't. I did not love God's Word. I avoided it. I rejected it. I um, was put off by it. I was bored by it. Uh, and I avoided it, particularly the preaching of it. Uh, I never quite worked that into my schedule and my priorities of life. And then I was converted. And I think one of the salient evidences of conversion in general, and I know my conversion in particular, is that same word had not changed one bit, but I had. Now I hungered for it. Now I had a passion for it. Now I loved that word. I love God's word. I love God's word for countless reasons. I love God's word because it's God's word. It's not man's word about God. It's God's word through men to men, male and female, that we may know him and make him known. I love God's word because it's inspired. God himself has given it to us through the Holy Spirit carried along holy men. I love God's word because it's infallible. Nothing can break God's word. If you try, if you try to break God's word, God's word breaks. You. I love it. I love God's word because it's not only infallible, it's inerrant. I can trust everything that it says. It's, uh, it's gloriously infallible and inerrant. I love it because it's sufficient. It is sufficient for all matters of faith and, and faith and practice that the man of God may be adequate and completed for every good work. I love God's word because of its simplicity. Yet I love that this same 
clear, simple, non-contradictory word is profoundly unfathomable. I remember once, early on in my ministry, the first decade of my ministry, I preached a series on Psalm 1 that ended up 27 sermons. Uh, and then I went down to Miami, Florida for my first church in the PCA, having been a student pastor when I preached that ser- series on Psalms. And I got down there and one of my mentors had just moved to Florida and I worked it out so I could get down early and go hear him preach on that Sunday night. His name was Jim Baird. I had just finished the series of 27 sermons on Psalm 1 and he announced his sermon when I got there that night, Psalm 1. I said, I turned to Cindy. I said, I said, oh my goodness, he's preached. I've already done that. I did 27 sermons on it. And uh, she said, well, why don't we just listen anyway? And oh, the depth of what Dr. Baird just poured out that day. And how many things have I learned from going back to Psalm 1? Do you see, God's word is like an artesian well. The deeper you go, the purer, the more vital the more refreshing is the water. It's like a gold mine. The deeper you dig, the purer and brighter is the gold and its value to your soul and your life. You cannot exhaust the Word of God because the Word of God reveals the God of the Word. And you can know God through His Word accurately and intimately, but you cannot know Him exhaustively. We will be learning of him and from him for all eternity if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior and you are there in the new heavens and the new earth. I love God's word. And one of the things I love about God's word, I mean, just stop and think. This Bible is 1600. It took 1600 years to write it. Forty plus human authors, no contradiction, no errors. Say, I think there was an author behind the author's. That God can't err, and thus we have it. And you have this singular manifestation of the glory of a triune God as creator, redeemer, and sustainer through the preeminence of Christ. And it just shines through all of the scriptures that have been given to us. It's gloriously powerful. And then this Bible, and then I get to books like Romans that just stand as the epitome of beauty and majesty and insight. And it's not only the content, but the construction of the Bible in general and books like Romans, Epistle of Romans in particular. I mean, there it starts off in chapter one. Who's writing this thing? Paul says, I'll let you know. Now, that wouldn't be unusual. Letters are always in that day and time uh, in the first century. You always introduce yourself in the opening. But we see the glorious credentials of a sinner saved by grace and rescued a religious terrorist that becomes an apostle in the church of Jesus Christ. And even in the introduction, we see the majesty of grace. And then you, then he brings you to what that glorious a heartbeat that he has. He calls it the gospel of God. The gospel of a triune God. The Father who sends the Savior. The Savior who comes to save. The Holy Spirit who comes to bring us to the Savior. To the glory of the Father. And this gospel of God, he says he's eager to preach it. He is, he is, he is unashamed to preach it. No matter how the culture would shame him into silence, he won't be silenced. And he is eager to come. He wants to preach it to the lost. He wants to preach it to the believer in discipleship to the 
lost in evangelism. He wants to preach it to the church so they can be a solid sending church to send him on to Spain later. And then he says, and then he gives these two salient pinnacle features of the gospel of God. And when he speaks of it in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it. This gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, this gospel of God, the righteousness of God is displayed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You get a righteousness by faith. It's not yours. It's God's that comes by faith. And then he says, it's for everyone. Jew or Gentile. Now, to develop this glorious gospel and get to those salient power of God, righteousness of God, and why that's so precious, and why it's so, why it's so glorious that it is indiscriminately offered to all. To get there, he unfolds for three chapters the bad news. <laughs> You know, the good news is good news, but the good news really gets good news when you see just how bad the bad news is. And as he unfolds it, he says, you know, I'll tell you why this is glorious that the gospel is for Jew and Gentile. Because everybody that's born Jew or Gentile is lost in their sin. Everybody. And he brings all of humanity before the searching justice, inflexible justice of God. And the bar of God's justice puts them on trial and the indictment is clear and declared and the indicted are described. He gets to the end in chapter three and what's the indictment? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's the indictment? All are under sin. What's the indictment? All are under the wrath of God and headed to the torments of a Christless eternity and the place is hell. We're born in that direction because we're sinners. In cosmic treason against God. Then he gives the profile of the indicted. There's none good. No, not one. All have turned aside. None seek for him. There is none who understands. The poison of asp is under their lips. As he goes back simply to the Old Testament and draws out the indictment, we're condemned. And draws out the profile of the indicted. And we find out at the end, we're helpless. We're hopeless. That's why there's good news for all. The power of God. The power of God to save the spiritually impotent and dead. And the righteousness of God that is a sure hope for the hopeless whose righteousness is like filthy rags. And with that bad news displayed, now the good news becomes glorious. 
And as he launches into this, now these glorious doctrines of regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, adoption. We're going into all of those in the coming chapters. But before we get there, he launches us with a summation in Romans chapter 3 in which he knows he is communicating something. And I love, can I just say, I love, can I, can I explain it and distill it simply the way the reformers did and the way Augustine did before them? When they got to Romans three twenty one through 31 and they read it they came out with these glorious statements the gospel of god is salvation by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone and the scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice and it's all for the glory of god alone that was distilled out of romans 3:21 through 31 and 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 the reformers saw that and just rejoiced because they were living in the 16th century where the corruption and the leadership of the church the corruption of doctrine superstition uh, cloudiness all of it had just had suffused the gospel was no longer now that doesn't mean some people didn't get saved i mean the word of god's there and people are in the providence of god are still going to get saved but that wasn't because of the church in that day that was in spite of the church in that day and because god had used his word by his spirit in their lives and they said, no, no, the church's mission is to proclaim the gospel of God. And they reclaimed it. And the watchwords became salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And these verses. And then he gives, and then he gives these four framing questions. Now let me give you, let me ask you, we're going to put all four of them up for you. Here are the four framing questions I just read for you. Number one was this. Where and, and so what becomes of our boasting? If you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. He gives the question and he gives a direct answer. It's excluded. There is no boasting. Now, and, and then why is there no boasting? So that's his second question. By what law, by what principle is our boasting excluded? Well, our boasting is excluded because we, we contributed nothing to our salvation. Let me say it again. We contributed nothing to our salvation. Now, God, when he saves us, allows us to contribute praise to him who saved us. God allows us to work for his glory, but we don't work for ourselves. We have no meritorious works to bring to the table. All that we bring to the table is the problem, not the solution. Well, then how do you get the solution? There's another law, and that is the law of faith. God's ordained instrument to receive that salvation by faith. Well, if I earned something, I got something to boast about. But if I am given something, I don't have anything to boast about except to boast about the one that gave it to me. Our boast is in the Lord. And then, of course, he had a third question that he brings out. And that third question is, well, it, this is it just for Jews or is it just for Gentiles? He says, well, there's one God. He made them both. And that same God who made them both can save them both. Well, don't they have to become a Jew in order to be saved? Oh, no, 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 not at all. He saves circumcised by faith. He saves the uncircumcised through faith. 
Well, then, well, let me get to the fourth question. Then the fourth question would be, well, if that's the case, what good is God's law? If it's by the law of faith that we're saved, why do we have God's law? Oh, he said, we don't abolish God's law. That's what we just read. We don't abolish. On the contrary, we don't do away with God's law. We uphold God's law. What we do away with is the unlawful use of the law. The law has no power to save. And you have no power to use the law to save yourself. You don't have power. The law doesn't have power. Only Jesus has the power of God and the righteousness of God to save you. Only Christ. And so now we can use the law for what it's lawfully given to us to show us our sin, our need of a Savior, and that Christ alone is the power of God and the righteousness of God. And then, after giving us these four framing questions about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by giving it to us, he then says, I gave you the short answer, now I'm going to give you a bigger answer. I'm going to give you a bigger answer, I'm going to give you an expounded answer, and I'm going to give you an illustration of that answer. And so that's what chapter 4 becomes. So in chapter 4, he he deals with boasting that our boasting is excluded and brings it to an expounded position using Abraham as an illustration. And then what we look at today is that he then says, well, what, what about this law of faith? And he expounds the law of faith so that we can understand it, again using the illustration of Abraham. Just can't you just see the ingenious nature of this? That he gives the questions, short answer. Now we come back to the questions, bigger answer. But here's the bigger thing. I had chapter, now get, please get this. Hang on, hang on. Wait, pinch yourself. Here you go. This is good. This is good. He gave you the three solas in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then he slipped in. Now he slips in the sola of Scripture. The scripture alone is our rule of faith and practice. Because when he begins to answer the question, what does he appeal to? Not to logic, not to the law of the land, not to the politics of the day. He appeals to the scriptures. What does the scripture say? And then when he appeals to the scripture, he comes up with an illustration for all four questions. His name is Abraham. And then he expounds the answer for us. And in doing so, he gives us the fifth sola. What's the fifth sola? For the glory of God alone. We have no boast in this. We boast in the Lord. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For the glory of God alone is our boast. Well, I just want you to see this part. Now, let me give you a couple of thoughts around the illustration and the exposition. Go with me to Romans chapter 4 and look at verse 1 and 2, which we already covered uh, two weeks ago. What then shall we say? What, what then shall we say was gained? Underline that word gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, stop right there. What is he saying? You see, already he's answered it. He said, well, what about our boasting? It's excluded. Well, why would we exclude it? He says, well, let's take a look at Abraham. Abraham's a good illustration. 
You can almost hear the sons of Abraham, the Jewish audience coming back. Down. Wait, 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 wait. Abraham was circumcised. Abraham uh, obeyed God. Abraham went up on the mountain. Abraham was ready to sacrifice. I, wait, wait just a minute. Abraham was saved. Look at his works. And he says to them, no, no. If Abraham was saved by his works, then he's got something to boast about. But he's not saved by his works. Let's take the illustration and go back in the scriptures where you have the illustration and see when he's saved. Genesis 15, 6. He wasn't saved by works. He was saved through faith. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham, now follow me. Abraham believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith wasn't righteous. His works weren't his righteousness. The Lord provided a righteousness that was received by the instrument of faith. That's what happened. And that is what has occurred now that Christ has become his boast because he's not saved by the works of the law, but he's saved by the work of Christ that he has received through faith. And by the way, the faith didn't come from Abraham. The faith came from the God who gave him the ability to believe. And when he believed in Christ, then God gave him through Christ by the power of God, a righteousness of God that makes him justified. What has Abraham gained? Abraham has gained salvation by being justified through faith. We get the chance to talk about one thing that I know a little bit about, not much, just enough to get into trouble. And the other thing I know nothing about, but thankfully my wife does. One is law, the other is accounting. And that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves now, look at chapter 4 and verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Paul's instinct is to turn not to philosophy, not to politics, not to the culture. His instinct is the scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice. From the scripture, he gets the illustration. And from the scripture, he gets the exposition. For what does the scripture say? Abraham, here's your quote, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, what did Abraham gain? Justification. Now, would y'all please stop with me right here? I, I got to do part of this exposition. And if you, if you, if you can grasp this, folks, I'm, I remember the first time I got this, it was like I got saved all over again. And I hope you get feel like you can't get saved all over. I did not. Don't go here. Harry said you get saved again. I did not say that. It's like getting saved all over again. You see, I grew up in a church where people believed the gospel, and Sunday school teachers that tried to explain it to me. Have you ever tried to explain something like justification to a ten-year-old, squirrely jumping around in the seat little boy? 
And so they kind of got a hold of something. And I remember what they said. Now, Ike, justification is just as if I'd never sinned. And, um, and so, okay, but that's only half. You see, we're in the world of law right now. Justification is a verdict. What is the opposite of justification? Condemnation. The verdict of condemnation is given to who? The guilty. The verdict of justification is given to whom? The innocent. Wait! For three chapters, Paul has just said, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. Well, how can God declare me justified, not simply forgiven, not simply pardoned, but innocent? How can I be right before God when everything's wrong with me before God? Now listen, this is the same God. This is the same God who says in his Bible... When he calls upon just judges to be just, he says that a judge who clears the guilty is an abomination. Did you hear what I just said? A judge who declares innocent the guilty in God's word is called what? An abomination. So how can God call me Innocent when I'm guilty. You've said that's an abomination. How can that possibly happen? Okay, I took a lot of courses in law and history in college. And one of the reasons I did is because I only had to take one course in accounting. And that was accounting 101. And I know very little about accounting. I remember my daddy told me when I first got married. He, he so I remember I was two months into my marriage, and he said, "Son, I want you to do in two months what it took me three months, and that is turn all of the books over to Cindy right now. That'll be the best thing that you can do." And so that's what we did. We turned the books over to Cindy, and it was, <laughs> and that has been great for fifty. Two years now. I married her when she was about 10. And that was, uh, so that's, that's what happened. So praise the Lord. I know, I know a little about counting, but I've had to get to know some theologically about it. I want you to read this text with me again. And I want you, I'm going to emphasize something. Now we find out how can God be holy and call me a guilty sinner innocent? How can he say no condemnation, only justification? How can he do that? Well, look, look with me a little bit closer. Here we go. Look at, look at chapter four. For if Abraham, verse two, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. That's not how God saves him. How does God save him? For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was, give me that word, counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not, give me that word, counted as a gift, but as his due. If you work for something, that's something you earned. That's something you merited. 
But when you've been given something, you don't have anything to boast about because you didn't merit it. Somebody else merited it and then freely gave it to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Do you get this blessing? Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, in him who justifies who? The ungodly, who makes innocent, that this one makes innocent the ungodly. His faith is what? Counted as righteousness. Now look, if you are living and you are of Jewish descent, you don't get any bigger than Abraham. So he's reached for Abraham as an illustration. And what does Jesus say? Abraham rejoiced in my day. Now, no way did Abraham know all that you know about the gospel. Abraham was at the point of the Bible of God revealing himself. We haven't even had the first author yet. He's coming 400 years later. But God is revealing himself. And God progressively reveals himself. Abraham doesn't know about the promised one, but he does know God and his promises. And he believed in him who would fulfill his promises. Now, we're over here and we're on the other side and we look back at the one in whom the promises of God are yes and amen. We've got greater clarity because we've got all of the scripture unfolded for us. He only had the revelation that was given to him. But based upon what he had, when the word came, he believed in God. And... The righteous, the same righteousness that saves you retroactively is given to him. That righteousness of God is given to him from Christ. And so he believes and it's counted to him as righteousness. So he believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then let me, let me finish out. And then he says, I got another illustration for you. Well, listen, if you're growing up and you're a little Jewish boy, if Abraham doesn't uh, get you excited, King David will get you excited. So now he reaches to David. And look what he says in, look what he says in verse um, 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God, what's that word? Counts righteousness apart from your works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. See that word? Five times. Five times the word count shows up. We get something called accounting. And what's happened? Here's an accounting term for you. Imputation. God sends his son. Our account is not counted against us, but against him. And he pays the penalty. Here is his account. Perfect righteousness. The one who cleansed us from our account and paid for our sins on the cross now gives us 
his account. So I am not only cleansed of my sin, their guilt and their shame, and the power has been broken by the Spirit of God. I not only have regeneration and, and justification, I've got a full justification because it's not just I'm forgiven, not guilty, I'm innocent because I've got the perfect righteousness of Christ that's given to me. Folks, that was almost like getting saved all over again. I realized, yeah, I mean, here's the way I went around thinking. I was going around thinking, I'm forgiven. Oh, I mean, listen, my sins were so clear. My sins were so heinous. My sins were so ungodly. I just, and to know I was forgiven just thrilled my soul. And then one day when this was unfolded for me and I said, wait, I'm not just forgiven. I'm innocent. I'm not just pardoned. I'm accepted. Reverently. I say it reverently. God can't send me to hell. My account has been paid. There is no double jeopardy. My guilt and my shame, there is now no condemnation. The charges have been cleared in Christ. But more than that, God must and gladly receive me into heaven. I'm clothed with the credentials of the righteousness of Christ. Not my own, but His. To know I'm not only forgiven, I am accepted in the Beloved. And the accounting has gone on. Our sins were counted against Him. Our sins were counted against him and he paid for them. And our and his perfect righteousness was accounted to us. My sins were imputed to him. His righteousness imputed to any and all who come to Christ by faith. And you receive the gift of eternal life. What did Abraham gain? He gained salvation and justification because of God's grace in Christ. He gained it not by merit, no boasting. He gained it by the graciousness of God. The un, not the merited works of Abraham, but the unmerited love of God relentlessly sought him to save him. And so it is with any and all. Listen to me carefully, and and we'll close with the takeaway. Faith doesn't save anyone. Only Christ saves. But Christ saves only through faith. It's not faith that saves. It's faith in Christ that saves. Faith in Christ who brings the power of God to bring you from death into life. And faith in Christ who brings you his righteousness. Just stop and think. The God, the God of glory who keeps Count of sin 
God is an accounting um, God is an accounting uh, genius. I don't know. I, I feel that's so trivial to say that. Anyway, he doesn't make any accounting mistakes. He doesn't get an audit letter. The soul that sins shall die. I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God keeps perfect count. And it's an abomination to declare innocent someone guilty. Then how in the world can we who are guilty be declared innocent? Because God has counted every one of our sins in thought, word, and deed and placed them on Jesus. Upon him the iniquity of us all was placed. And there is no Wandering sin. Who will lay a charge against God's elect? It is God who has justified them. Jesus paid the account. There our sins came upon him. There all of God, all of the hell that was due for all of our sins poured out upon him on the cross and he drank that cup of wrath to the bottom and then he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Payment made. Payment Made in full. I'm forgiven. Then he gives righteousness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How can you and I be saved? Here's what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that sinners can only be saved by the power of God in Christ, by the righteousness of God from Christ. How do sinners receive that power of God and that righteousness of God? By faith alone in Christ. Now, Pastor, will my faith be alone? No, you're going to do works, but they're not works of merit. They're works of praise. Your Savior. That's what we just said, wasn't it? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his poema. We're his masterpiece. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he has prepared beforehand. In other words, my works are there not to be saved, but to evidence my salvation. They're there for my Savior. For my salvation, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him I find. Alive in him, my living head, clothed with righteousness divine. Now bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown of Christ who is my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, didst die for me. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not to part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So my takeaway, my question simply is, 
What does the scripture say? You're not saved by your works. You can only be saved through the work of Christ and receive it by faith. Abraham, what's Abraham going to bring to God to be saved? Hey, God, save me. I'm the guy that almost had my wife killed twice while I tried to save my skin. Or how about David? How about David? The one who writes... Oh, my sin. Oh, the bliss. I mean, the one who writes, um, how blessed is the man whose, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. How blessed is the man whose transgression is eradicated and removed. When did he say that? Well, let me tell you when he said that. There's a preacher that came up to him. His name was Nathan. And Nathan said unto him, he said, King David, there's a rich man who had everything. And there's a poor man who had one sheep. And the rich man killed the poor man to get his one sheep. So, David. David, what do you think we ought to do to the man who killed the poor man to get his one sheep? And David says, kill him. And Nathan says, you're the man. Adulterer. Thief. Murderer. What does he bring? They have nothing to bring and we have nothing to bring. We only bring the problem. But God has the solution in his son, Jesus. And you receive it through the instrument of faith. I confess my sins and put my trust in Christ alone. That Christ alone is my hope, my one true and only hope. Upon him you have laid my sins. Oh, my sin, how blessed the thought, my sins are covered. By the way, when David heard that sermon, does anyone know what he wrote? A sin of, I mean, a psalm of faith and repentance. It's called Psalm 51. Created me, God, a clean heart. My sins are ever before me. They are consuming me. I confess my sins, Psalm 51. Does anyone know what he wrote after his psalm of faith and repentance in Christ alone. Do you want to know what he wrote next? Paul quotes it for you right here. He didn't write Psalm 52. He wrote Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 is what he quotes. How blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now the righteousness of Christ covers you. And blessed is the man against the Lord, whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. It's not just faith professed. It's a faith whereby you are possessed. And that is a faith in Christ. And they surrender to Christ. You say, Pastor, I believe. I believe Jesus. Pastor, I even get emotional. Believing that there's a Jesus, believing there's a God, and being emotional qualifies us to be demons. The demons believe and tremble. But to come confessing our sins and surrender and believe in Christ alone.
our only hope, our only dress, his blood and his righteousness. So what says the scripture? We're helpless, we're hopeless. But there is a sure salvation that is found by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. The world doesn't say that. The world says, the world's got all its religions. You can buy it. You can give it. You can play mental gymnastics. There's no such thing as evil. There's no such thing as sin. By the way, we're all pretty good people. All of needs a little more money and a little bit more education and somebody to light a few lamps in my neighborhood. Everything will be all right. Um, two more years of education will do it, won't it? Or you hear the word of God that says man is sinful and he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. But there's a God who loves to save sinners. And he gave his son. And upon him our iniquity fell. And if you come to him and put your trust in him, you have eternal life. What says the scripture? What says the world? The real question today, and I'm closing in prayers, what do you say? Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. I am yours. You are mine. Saving faith is not the act of a moment. It is the acquisition of a life in Christ alone. Please come. Please come to him. He will save you. He will surely save you. Amazing love. How can it be? Christ died for you, me. Don't listen to the world. What says the scripture? Come to Christ. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together in your word. Holy Spirit. May I ask you to please speak to all that are here. For those who know you, would you this day fill them with such joy to know of their full salvation that's found in Christ alone. A sure hope. A sure hope. A living hope. An everlasting hope. And Father, would you fill them with the joy of their salvation. The joy of the Lord. That they may know Grace is greater than all our sin in Christ. Thank you for the gift of faith whereby we lay hold of Christ. And today, if you want to make that commitment to Christ, up here, right at the very front, in the end of the service, if you'll just make your way up, or maybe you just want to pray with someone, our prayer team would be up here. Just come and pray with them, confidentially and personally. It would be our privilege. Oh God, our God, thank you that though there was no way for the helpless and hopeless, you made a way, and that way is your Son, Jesus, and the Scripture says it. God, please don't let us take our clues from media, the academic world, the entertainment world, the political world, but what says the scripture which brings us
by grace alone, through faith alone, to Christ alone, for the glory and boast of God alone. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.